Production and distribution of City Club Forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of, conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. It's Tuesday, February 20th, and I'm Cynthia Connolly, Director of Programming here, and thrilled to be joined here by two of our region's top health system CEOs, Dr. Tomasov Mihaljevic with the Cleveland Clinic and Dr. Cliff McGarian with University Hospitals. Since the beginning days of the COVID-19 pandemic, Cleveland Clinic and University Hospitals came together to find common ground to address our generation's big, biggest public health emergency. In fact, we heard about some of those lessons right here at the City Club in August of 2021. It's a virtual forum if you, you missed it, feel free to watch it at our archives. Now, those two health institutions make good on their promise to continue their collaborative and innovative work going even further to improve the health and well-being of our communities. Dr. Tomislav Mihaljevich has led the Cleveland Clinic's health system since January 2018. He is responsible for the globally integrated healthcare system, which has 23 hospitals and 265 outpatient locations, employing 80,000 caregivers and 5,700 physicians and scientists worldwide. Dr. Cliff McGarian began serving as University Hospital's CEO since February 2021. He leads more than 50 health centers and outpatient facilities and over 200 physician offices located throughout 16 counties. Moderating the conversation is WKYC senior health correspondent, Monica Robbins. Monica's work has garnered several excellence in journalism awards. She is a five-time Emmy Award recipient and several first place awards from the Ohio Press Club and Associated Press. She has also been inducted into the Ohio Broadcasters Hall of Fame. If you have a question for our speakers, you can text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And City Club staff will try to work it into the second half of the program. Members and friends of the City Club, please join me in welcoming our speakers and Monica Robbins. Monica. Cynthia, thank you so much. And thank you to the City Club. So we know Necessity is often the mother of invention, but it's also the mother of collaboration, and that's exactly what happened during the COVID-19 pandemic from the beginning when Dr. McGarrian just took over university hospitals. From that point, you got together and you started discussing what you could do, and coming out of that was a, the white paper. Can you guys discuss what that is? Well, you know, it's, uh, I don't know if it was serendipity or destiny as it relates to our relationship uh, being solidified uh, at the time that uh, COVID descended upon the country, but as really, it was January of uh, 2020 that him, him and I went to dinner, to, me to introduce myself to him, and at the dinner, uh, we both looked at each other and he said, we're, we're gonna, we should compete. We should compete very hard about each one of us having the best health care and let the winner win because the community is going to win because they're going to get better care somewhere, maybe hopefully the both of us, 
but I think we both concluded, and Tom was very wise, that we should not compete as it relates to our community benefit. And that was really, I think, a transformational moment where we decided we're gonna collaborate on everything as it relates to making our community safer. And then I think it was two weeks later, we had our first COVID case, and we said, this is the opportunity. So we opened up joint um, testing facilities at the Walker Center, and then ultimately um, testing as it relates to uh, how uh, people are tested, and then finally uh, uh, treatment and, uh, and vaccinations. But maybe I'll have Tom um, take in the next step as it relates to us putting out as a white paper really a challenge to the rest of our colleagues around the country. Yeah, and, and the challenge in, in a form of a white paper is essentially describes an opportunity here in the United States uh, to translate uh, something that is often seen as a paradox of U.S. healthcare. Uh, what I mean by that is that uh, we pride ourselves rightfully so that we do have the best hospitals in the world. There is absolutely undisputable truth. I think it, it is difficult to dispute the fact that if anyone of us would ever want to have their loved ones taken, treated for serious condition, they would always choose United States as a destination and U.S. hospital as a destination. On the other hand, there is another part of perception around U.S. healthcare and health in the United States when people say we're investing so much money and our public health domain uh, suffers from the outcomes that are not commensurate with the investment that the society is making. So what uh, our teams, uh, Cliffs and, and, and ours at the, at the Cleveland Clinic, uh, came up with was a paradigm that could really improve the health of, uh, of, of our citizens in the United States when nonprofit organizations like ours do not compete but rather collaborate in all areas that are relevant to public health. In this case, during the pandemic, it was testing, it was sharing of resources, it was distribution of vaccine. And in subsequent uh, years, we have found many other areas where we can collaborate for the benefit of the communities that we serve. So anything from hunger, from lead poisoning, we'll speak about all of that, uh, to the improvement on infant and maternal mortality and so on. But essentially, this white, paper describes a framework that could lead ultimately to the significant improvement uh, in the health of fellow Americans if everyone across the country were to follow the pattern that we established at the time of crisis. From that point, um, you talked about the collaboration of the citizens right around the neighborhoods around both of your facilities are neighborhoods of need. What was it, what was the first thing that you wanted to address when it came to your own neighbors? So the list, the list of the needs of our immediate neighborhoods is very, very long. Um, uh, one thing that I would like to say before I answer this question is that the collaboration that we established uh, during a pandemic translated in a very regular and a structured collaboration in subsequent years. Ever since pandemic, we meet at least four times a year. Mm -hmm not just Cliff and myself, but our executive teams to address the needs of our communities and, uh, and the need, needs of our neighborhoods. So the needs, at least the way that we have prioritized our efforts jointly, uh, relates about the well-established problems in our neighborhoods and the challenges that only we jointly can address. And just to bucket them into several, one is employment. 
It's the biggest predictor of public health is whether people have a well-paying job and whether they're employed. The second one is uh, food insecurity. Third one is lead poisoning. And a fourth one is uh, infant mortality. This is not an exhaustive list. Ever and in many other things that we've collaborated on, opioid pandemic is uh, is one. But it, those are kind of the biggest themes. Yeah, I think it, um, <clears throat> and I, I think it's very important to, to state that uh, this was, in many measures, scientifically based. So when we looked at, if you will, some of the disparities in health outcomes in some of the neighborhoods that um, our large health centers are in, um, we determined, for example, very early that um, some of our citizens and our patients were living in food deserts. So as you know, just down the street, we took the, uh, and Cl Cleveland Clinic quickly followed through, but we took um, the uh, start of opening the Center for Women and Children on 55th Street, and then realized that the goal of that was to lower the rate of infant and maternal morbidity and mortality because prenatal care and the first year postnatal care was not really getting treated for transportation reasons and other reasons. So we made an investment, we did it for the right reasons, but then we realized we were still failing because we were telling these families and these, these moms and, and, and the dads that we needed to eat better. There was nowhere for food to be bought in that hub neighborhood. They were buying food from grocery stores, not grocery stores, literally from gas stations and um, convenience stores. So we worked with Dave's supermarket, brought a supermarket in. The clinic followed up with a similar program in the Fairfax neighborhood with Myers. And what has happened as a result of that, and I, we have data now that we could show that as it relates to, for example, diabetes, obesity, and hypertension that we're plaguing, if you will, um, these families in, in the neighborhood that, for example, the Center for Women and Children are in, we've been able to lower hemoglobin A1C, which is a marker of, of diabetes severity. We've been able to lower weight and improve hypertension, which then leads to now a demonstrable drop in infant and maternal morbidity mortality. So uh, we didn't just knee-jerk reaction do these interventions. And the same thing can be said for our work as it uh, relates to job creation. We got very deliberate on creating the Health Anchor Network partnership that the both of us have done. And last year we had 827 jobs, for, and 88% of them from underrepresented minorities. And that's a collaborative effort. These are the kind of things, and then that increases the wages, increases the, the quality of life, and we're trying to address every single one of them uh, in a collaborative manner. You both are part of the uh, impact workforce commitment that 17 health systems signed uh, last May. From that, it was exactly what you're speaking of, is hiring a, a more diverse workforce, and it was just asked of you to get a 10% effort. Where are you now? For 25% already. Yeah, we're at that number, but a bit higher when you combine uh, Ohio, Ohio and Florida. We have both exceeded, exceeded the expectations uh, of 10% uh, um, by, by wide margin, fortunately. Job creation, we know that uh, there's a desperate need for more healthcare workers currently, and we know there's going to be an even bigger need in years to come. Are you collaborating on a way to find that workforce or get younger people interested um, and get them into healthcare at a much earlier age so you can have a workforce pool to, to uh, choose from? No, absolutely. I think what we know, uh, there's one specific phenomenon that relates to healthcare, not just in the United States, but globally, and that is a workforce shortage. So uh, just uh, 
as an example, here in the United States, just for nursing, we have about one million nursing jobs that are unfilled. And yet our net new production and education of nurses in the United States is about 100,000 a year. So that means that this workforce shortage is going to persist with us for a really long time. So what is then left for our organizations like ours is to look at innovative ways to attract uh, people into healthcare workforce at the earliest stages. Jointly, we have outreaches into high schools, programs that are sponsored by philanthropy that create an apprenticeship, uh, apprenticeships for healthcare uh, professions. And we have been very, very successful jointly. There's one really important opportunity, not just for healthcare, but for any employer in the United States, and that is to take a look at the hiring, in particularly for underprivileged communities, uh, that is based on the skills of people instead of their, uh, their diplomas or, or the lack of their diplomas. Skill-based hiring uh, is something that we're enthusiastically supporting. At Cleveland Clinic, we have looked at uh, hundreds and hundreds of jobs descriptions and changed the requirements for people to enter into those jobs. That, can that has opened literally thousands of jobs, in particular people from our immediate neighborhoods in healthcare, not just enter jobs, but also career progression that was mapped later on based on their skills and aptitude. And we're very enthusiastic about it. We joined 110 Coalition, which was the coalition dedicated to create one million jobs for African-Americans over 10 years. And uh, happy to say that we're um, arguably leading the way in the United States in a skill-based hiring. And this, these are the practices that uh, our organization share. I, th I think it's important uh, for the community to know that this is a very deliberate uh, effort. Um, so for example, in nursing, uh, we started in the clinic is following through, but with a um, nursing scholars program for high school students who is just entering another class of 46. As it relates to kids in the uh, schools and the underprivileged uh, zip codes, a, uh, a scholars program, they start in eighth grade and we help them uptick their STEM training and the goal is to get them to graduate and go to college and hopefully come back uh, to medical school. But this doesn't stop. We then take the next step as it relates to encouraging medical students to come back to Cleveland with the Satcher Fellowship that applies to both uh, Cleveland Clinic and UH, trying to encourage uh, medical students to come here, whether it be the Cleveland Clinic or a combined university program. And then it doesn't stop as it relates to uh, residencies. We have uptick by close to 18% of our recent, um, through deliberative efforts, 18% of our most recent, we have nearly, between the two of us, nearly 2,000 residents. People don't really realize that we're not only taking care of people, we're training the doctors of tomorrow. If you combine us, one of the largest residency training programs in the United States. And, um, and I'm sure his data is similar, but we have now last year 18% of the residents who joined uh, are from underrepresented minorities. That's a deliberate effort to increase the diversity of the caregivers from the very beginning and all the way on the back end as it relates to uh, impacting um, you know, the work environment. One of the other things we saw that was a remnant of the pandemic was a, a number of healthcare workers who left the field. Um, is there an effort that, you know, in addition to this, how are you addressing workplace burnout? That, that is an extremely challenging topic uh, because the environment of healthcare has changed tremendously. Uh, even over the last 10 years, and those changes uh, were accelerated 
by COVID pandemic. The workforce shortage before COVID pandemic was present, but the numbers that we just mentioned, this tremendous workforce shortages is today were accelerated by the pandemic. So uh, burnout is uh, one big contributor. Uh, the pressures of the workplace in, in healthcare are different than it used to be. Uh, I would like to highlight one phenomenon that we do not speak publicly about healthcare work environment, and that is violence. Violence at workplace is a silent and a very significant epidemic in healthcare. Our caregivers are exposed to a tremendous amount of violence and abuse in their daily work. I'll just give you an illustrative example. Cleveland Clinic confiscates 30,000 weapons a year. 30,000 weapons a year are being confiscated on our premises. The workforce violence incidents where our caregivers who are trying to take care of others are seriously hurt, abused verbally or physically, has doubled over the last four years. As a result, we had to double the size of our workforce, our police workforce, to keep both our caregivers as well as our patients safe. Uh, that, is a, that leads to burnout. That people working in a hostile environment, day in and day out, uh, it's really difficult to, to uh, continue to keep their enthusiasm and the willingness to, to stay in healthcare. You know, I, I completely agree uh, in all the statistics that uh, Tom alluded to as it relates to uh, violence, which is one of the drivers, if you will, of stress, which can lead to burnout are absolutely prevalent um, here at UH, and uh, you know we're just a few hundred yards across the street from each other, so it shouldn't be a surprise. But having said that, taking a step back as it relates to uh, the, the notion of uh, nursing shortage in the United States, actually over a million nurses were short, um, and the stress of the uh, work that requires a lot of electronic work, et cetera, I think gives us an opportunity if we're smart, to reimagine, if you will, the healthcare delivery system of tomorrow. And I think it is incumbent on both of us to, and we are collaborating, our nursing leaders are collaborating, they're having meetings, et cetera, about looking at the workforce of tomorrow. In other words, what are the different levels of people we need to provide the same amount of work and care of a patient? And can that change, and can that change take advantage of, if you will, the change in the workforce? That's one opportunity. The second opportunity, which I think, and we, we're both working toward this, and I see leaders of nursing schools in the audience, is how does the American hospital work closer with the nursing schools to provide a better relationship for clinical training so those nursing schools can increase their class size? One of the biggest drivers of, it's not as though there's not a shortage of people applying to nursing school. Nursing schools are turning away over 50% of the people who apply. But can the hospitals help create an environment where the, um, the, the nursing schools can adopt or collaborate with our excellent nurses to help in the clinical education so as to increase those class sizes? And those are the kind of things I think we need to do when we're faced with the challenge, if you will, of the changing workforce. Another thing that we learned during the pandemic that both systems and every system pretty much across the country addressed was the mental health of, of the workers. Um, 
has that expanded and collaboratively, what are you doing to uh, mental health is finally something that is out in the forefront. We're talking about it, but we, there is a desperate shortage of mental health caregivers. Is there a collaboration on that front? I mean, this is, a, again, a very challenging problem. I mean, the, the, the part of it is, I mean, I see my chair of psychiatry in the audience, and uh, last time we spoke, we've had over a 350% increase in the need for behavioral health services uh, just since the near the end of the pandemic. So the amount of folks who are in trouble and need help has gone up dramatically. That, if, that therefore, the math has changed, and what was it? Um, uh, a serviceable group of caregivers in that space has now become a, uh, a problem. I think similarly, we are changing, if you will, uh, the approach as it relates to the, not, the type of personnel, the training, whether you use social workers, PhDs, MDs, a variety of different people. Can you adopt digital me mechanisms? You know, we have a, if you look at all the different service offerings, we have one of the highest utilization of visual, digital health is, is mental health, that makes it easier and, 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 uh, to uh, deliver. But I think one of the things that bears mention as it relates to behavioral and, and mental health is a significant rise in addiction. Um, and addiction uh, is one of the drivers, it's the necessary ingredient of leading ultimately to, for example, an opioid overdose, right? And the city was uh, devoid in training programs for uh, addiction psychiatry. But we got together, UH the Cleveland Clinic. We couldn't individually get approved, if you will, by the ACGME authority because of, for whatever reason, we decided to apply together to get um, a combined addiction psychiatry fellowship. And so now we're uh, training uh, more people in that area. I think that's gotta be one of the things that we do is looking to work together in areas that we're looking at a dearth of personnel. Yeah, I, I think we're, not, not to be redundant. And mental health is, is, is a huge challenge globally. United States uh, is obviously no exception. What everybody's doing is really <clears throat> applying the realization of the explosion in needs for mental health and translating this in a few transformative processes. One is a different type of a comprehensive team-based care that needs to be delivered for people with mental health. The other one is an investment into digital digital technology that helps us really scale up those efforts in a ways that are <clears throat> that are much much more much more effective and uh, the third is uh, uh, a renewed focus on a mental health of those who are most vulnerable and those are children another collaboration that came from all of this is data sharing and that's one way of seeing a tangible impact of what this collaboration is being able to accomplish. Can you give us an example? Yeah. So we've, we've shared uh, uh, a lot of data, and we, as I said, we openly communicate. Our executive teams mean, uh, meet, as mentioned before, once a quarter. And we have uh, decided on a portfolio of uh, collaborative efforts that we are pursuing. And that spans from supply chain to immunization, mental health, hiring, and the list, the list goes on. In order for us to be effective in that process, uh, we, do, we do share data. Uh, just about this, uh, uh, our efforts in a skills-based hiring, our efforts in, uh, in uh, early outreach into the schools with an apprenticeship program is something that we're proud of, 
but yet this is not a proprietary information in order for us to be effective. Our teams do share data in a very meaningful way. And through the sharing of data and collaboration, we can be more, more effective. Obviously, one, the effectiveness of the effort is impossible without uh, uh, data sharing. And I think uh, building on what Tom said, it is even collaborative and complementary. So for example, uh, I don't know how many folks were aware we had a press conference in December of uh, 2023 about um, the work that, uh, including Metro as well as UH and, and the Cleveland Clinic, are doing as it relates to creating food banks uh, and food delivery systems. And if we're here and here, we haven't gotten here, then they're gonna go there. And if you look at now by virtue of sharing data and sharing information, um, we are able to now cover um, unbelievable parts of Cleveland and communities uh, to create uh, healthy food alternatives in partnership with the Greater Cleveland Food Bank, which is an amazing organization. But that's a great sign of the mechanism by which we achieve that is through data sharing. This is what we're doing. You, you know, you're going to do this. Well, here's we're here. Maybe you could go here. There, grocery store in Fairfax neighborhood. When we have one here in the Huff neighborhood, these are the kind of things where I think it's important that we do that. Economic drivers. You both are the biggest employers uh, in this region. Um, from that standpoint, supply issue was a huge issue during the pandemic. How have you collaborated to address that, and how have you collaborated to get more diversity business or diverse businesses involved? Yeah, when it comes to our diverse suppliers and uh, uh, our supply chains, which are extremely compl complex, as you can imagine, for the organizations of our size with the spectrum of services that we provide, we have thousands and thousands of different suppliers. So supply chain is extremely intricate and extremely complex uh, part of a life of uh, healthcare systems like ours. Having said that, the diversity of our suppliers is really important. We both share a conviction that the increased diversity of the suppliers and people who participate in supplying hospitals is just good for the community that we serve. And uh, we collaborate in that as well. And as, as you can see, we have uh, we have exceeded absolutely every single metric when it comes to the diversity of our suppliers through, through combined efforts, something that we're proud of. A great example of that uh, that Tom was alluding to was the program where we jointly contribute, I think it's $10,000. We have a contest for um, minority suppliers who need to get some insight and help to grow their businesses. And we have a competition almost like a Shark Tank type thing and we just recently awarded to six different uh, minority suppliers startup dollars and more importantly some help as it relates to business development uh, to get them on their feet and that's something we'll continue to do on the other hand as it relates to uh, suppliers and supplies there's no law that wouldn't allow us to work together and we're very carefully as our contracts come up uh, for this or for that looking and analyzing if we could do better by purchasing together, and we've already had some areas that we've uh, achieved that, achieved value savings for, for our organizations in the region, uh, because then we could spend more money on other stuff. Um, but that is really an opportunity that we're gonna really dissect. One of the things that a lot of people are worried about, it, what, what happens with the next pandemic? Hopefully <laughs> we won't see that in our lifetime, but um, what, what have you both learned from the first one uh, the good and the bad that y 
would go into preparing for the next? The good one, and we spoke about some of those learnings, uh, the good learnings is that uh, when large healthcare organizations like ours get together early and start to collaborate, that benefits everyone involved. Another really important lesson is that we have to always try to broaden that collaboration to all participants, in this case, and that can make our combat against the pandemic more effective. Um, our Government here, state governments, uh, municipal governments, the city of Cleveland, they were all involved in our combined effort uh, to help take care of our fellow citizens. So I think that is the biggest and the most important learning. So whatever comes our way, if it comes our way during our tenure, fingers crossed that it's not going to happen, uh, uh, we, will, we will apply those, those learnings immediately. And the opposite is true. If anyone tries to do something uh, by their own, they're bound to be ineffective and ultimately not successful. Yeah, I think the benefit of, and again, I think it's hard to contemplate a next pandemic because we don't know what that's gonna be, what type of uh, organism that's gonna be, gestation, et cetera. So, but having said that, let's say it was a very similar, I think the benefit will be that we already have, if you will, a playbook. We have a playbook, which took a little bit at the beginning. It wasn't, I mean, a lot of things, getting the government relationships set up, getting the state relationships set up, getting the region set up as it relates to the command structure uh, for uh, Ohio and our region. Um, but we now have all that, and it won't be hard to dust that off, God forbid, if something like that happens again. Um, and, um, and we also understand, you know, um, uh, how to deal with, if you will, our employees, how to deal with the public who's afraid. What one thing we learned from this is what was one of the best antidotes, if you will, um, uh, was communication and information, constant information. And remember, during the heat of COVID, it was literally daily updates. And both of us realized that probably maybe at the beginning we weren't, but now we know what we gotta do for our staff, for our patients. We have to be the source of the information. And um, so I, I feel, I don't want anything like that to happen again, but if it did, I think we're gonna be a better spot. I wanna remind our audience that uh, you are going to be able to start asking questions in just a few minutes. At this point, um, what's next? From, from both of your perspectives of you put together this, you know, this huge plan of all the things you want to tackle, but there has to be something in the bucket list that you, you want to see accomplished. What would that be? I think, uh, I'll, I'll obviously speak for myself, but I believe that we have this uh, kind of a shared, shared ambition for our community here in Cleveland. We would like to make Cleveland the, the healthiest city in the United States. I can't add to that uh, <laughs> because I think if you dissect all the things that we're doing from attacking um, the various, um, if you looked at our portfolio when we meet every quarter, there's literally 12 areas from food insecurity to job creation to managing toxins in our, in our region, et cetera. Um, if you did all those things, and we did them well. Yes, indeed, Cleveland would be the healthiest city. 
So I don't have anything more to add. That's clearly, I think, what we've, that's why we designed it. Uh, but it takes a lot of work. I think we're ahead in some areas, we're down here in some areas, we gotta keep going together. Um, for me personally, I think uh, as a global thinker, uh, and I know Tom is a global thinker um, as well, but I wanna see this become endemic in the rest of the country. In other words, if you go to Boston, and I trained there, and so did Tom, I was at the Mass General, even though we were part of them, we wouldn't talk to the people at the Brigham Hospital. We wouldn't do anything with them. We didn't do the people at BU or LAE. Never happened in Chicago, University of Chicago. And I just got off the phone with the CEO of Northwestern. He's wondering, I said, go over there, meet with the head of University of Chicago, meet with the head of Loyola, meet with that. If we could create a template by which every city would combine with their hospitals, if you will, community benefit dollars and community benefit efforts and potentiate them by working together, this would help raise, I think, uh, the health of the, of, of the nation because in the end of the day, that is our public health system. If you look at the United States and what we spend on GDP, people argue that we spend 19% of our GDP on healthcare, but if you compare that to the G8 countries who spend 11 to 12, they're spending six, 7% on a public healthcare system. Our hospitals are basically our public healthcare system, but to make them more powerful, make it more powerful, we need people to take off their, their their, their hats and work together. And I think if we could spread this, which we are doing with the white paper and many things, I think then that would be a very big thing for me. All right, we are about to begin the audience Q&A. And for our live stream audience, or those just joining us, I'm Monica Robbins, the senior health correspondent for WKYC. And I'm the moderator for today's conversation. Today we are joined by Tomislav Mihalovic, president and CEO of the Cleveland Clinic, and Cliff McGarian, CEO of University Hospitals, both physicians. We are also talking about how our region's top hospital systems are working together for healthier Cleveland families. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those joining us via our live stream at cityclub.org. And if you'd like to text a question for our speakers, please text it to 330 541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And City Club staff will try to work your question into the program. So I see someone at our microphone would uh, please take the first question. Thank you both for being here. And these initiatives that you spoke about today are amazing. I've been following them in the news and I'm very much aware of them. And to hear you articulate more today is great. But when I think in terms of communication, I think of outreach. I think of connecting with a broad, wider audience. I think of spokespeople from different generations. And I was wondering, in terms of that, like what are these outreach efforts? You know, right, right now, off the top of my mind, as I'm sitting here, I'm thinking of a young woman from the inner city who is currently the only Olympian from the state of Ohio She's all about health, nutrition. She's gotten her Tri-C Associate's degree. She's gotten medical certifications. I think of her as a quintessential spokesperson. I think of her as someone that could be part of an outreach effort. But please uh, share with us these, these kinds of outreach efforts to reach these generations. Thank you. Yeah, I'll, you know, I, I, that's a great question, and thank you. Um, you know, you, um, we have uh, many, many uh, outreach folks who are patients uh, uh, collectively of ours, who we have work back in their communities 
I think your point is well taken that you need a spokesperson uh, to help generate the interest of that community that you're trying to help improve the overall health of that community to instill the trust in that group of folks to use our healthcare systems, which is very important. And we use spokespeople. They may not be an Olympian, but they may be someone in that community. They could be from the church, for example, and we spend a lot of time with church leaders and other uh, leaders in various neighborhoods to be that spokesperson who's known in that community. Um, and that's, I think, what, what we do. And it is pretty effective, but I think your point is a good one. Should we be looking for someone with maybe uh, uh, an Olympian or someone uh, who's a famous person. I think those are very good. Now we use, obviously they take care of the Indians and, 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 um, and the calves. We take care of the Browns uh, and the Monsters. And we use, and we're, kind, we're lucky enough to have those teams provide their famous people, whether it be Miles Garrett or whatever, to be a spokesperson for, for folks to take care of their health. Um, but could we do more of it? Absolutely, that's a great suggestion. I think the, just like any outreach, uh, to to have an outreach to a broad and very diverse population, one has to have a broad and very diverse and different types of channels through which the outreach is being done. So, uh, doing it doing it only with a few ambassadors is really successful. I think what we have learned is that we need to step out in a community. It's actually the more the the more present we are in the communities, the stronger is the arguments that we can make for the health of those communities. But we also have to recognize the, the value of different channels about how to reach people. Young people are going to very readily identify with the young Olympian that you just described. For elderly people uh, uh, or people with different types of interest that may not, be, uh, that may not resonate with them at all. So uh, with that realization, I think we're going deep into community with the diverse uh, ways of communicating our, our value proposition, if you will. And uh, I do believe that uh, our fellow citizens are paying attention. And uh, uh, I, I would like to believe that the awareness of the work that we are doing jointly is far greater now than it has been historically. Good afternoon. My colleagues and I are here today from the Cuyahoga County Board of Developmental Disabilities. And over many years, we've partnered with some of the Northeast Ohio hospital systems to offer services to individuals with de uh, developmental disabilities, like the very successful University Hospital IDD Psychiatry Clinic. Uh, yet people with developmental disabilities still face a number of obstacles accessing quality services, especially in areas of dental and psychiatry. So my question for you is, how can you collaborate to serve this very vulnerable and important population going forward? Thank you. Well, uh, we, there is, there's absolutely no barriers for our collaboration on this specific topic. Uh, I think there, there are two, several ways that I can think about that. One is for providing a care for, for, for people with very specific needs. But the other one, and it's equally important and very, very important, is for uh, those who are just suitable providing jobs and employment. Uh, because as we mentioned previously, the single and most important determinant of public health is an ability to have a well-paying job. So in particular, people with uh, uh, disabilities, that is of paramount importance. And I know that both of our organizations actually have a portfolio of jobs that are being offered. 
within healthcare to, uh, uh, to people who we frequently care for as well. So a wonderful and very gratifying aspect of the work that we do in healthcare that we can actually provide provider jobs. We, you know, I happen to share an enthusiasm and support for school of autism. Um, we take care of very many kids uh, with autism. One of the biggest challenges is what happens after they're done with school. Are we going to be able to provide meaningful jobs? Are we going to be able to be uh, uh, well-functioning adults? Uh, and uh, the only way that that can be accomplished is for them having a job, and that's where our organizations can offer probably more jobs than many other employers. The only thing to add, you know, whether, and, and thank you for the question, uh, as it relates to those with disabilities, and you do great work, uh, in, the, in, in the organization that you run, and, and we're honored to take care of your patients. But if there are challenges with getting your patients seen, and because it's unique, if the challenges for every different group, and if you will, demographic, you know, our team would be happy to sit down and figure out how to smooth that, make that easier uh, for you and your team. Oftentimes it takes a sit down uh, to listen to the discrete challenges that uh, you're having. Um, and then have us craft mechanisms to help address that. And so we're very happy to do that. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Angela Newman-White. I'm the executive director of First Year Cleveland. Um, we're a public-private partnership, and we work with community members and constituents to identify community-driven solutions um, to address our infant mortality crisis that is caused by institutional and structural racism that translates into the inequities that we see and that you talked about as some of your priorities um, within your systems, like food insecurity, housing, and things of that nature. I have a million questions, but I'll just ask one. Hmm. <laughs> um, understanding and knowing that two-thirds of the deaths associated with pregnancy or pregnancy-related deaths, speaking in the maternal mortality and morbidity, understanding that those are preventable, what steps are your systems taking outside of providing implicit bias training to ensure that your patients of color have um, a sense of patient safety and security, but also ensuring accountability on the provider side? Thank you. Um, you had a very specific question uh, as it relates. We, we dissected very closely, and uh, the team, some of the members are here today, or what were some of the leads uh, or leading factors that led to mortality or morbidity in the African-American population. That's what drove us to spend $42 million and build a center for women and children so we could provide prenatal care the best we can. And we found that um, that wasn't enough and we had to provide better food and uh, help deal with food insecurity. We started creating those mechanisms um, and then we realized we had to have a diverse workforce and we're trying our hardest and we're making some progress. When I mentioned the 18% of our newest residents are from underrepresented minority groups, but we really need to do a better job of having, uh, if you will, a diverse uh, workforce, particularly in, in, in the African-American space, providers, nurse midwives who represent the people that they're taking care of so trust can develop even faster. And those are the, 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 the projects, I think, that will help drive, um, uh, if you will, uh, down the numbers. We're already seeing the numbers dropping, thank goodness, uh, but we need to work very, very hard and at the same time have system-wide efforts 
uh, which our uh, leadership as it relates to diversity, equity, and belonging has instituted in system-wide training as it relates to implicit bias. Um, and that work uh, has been very successful uh, in terms of rolling it out and it's continuing. So I think, I think the answer to your question needs to be not a one or two um, uh, uh, solution, one, one or two point solution. It has to be a change in the culture and the change in the culture that we're trying to instill is having our arms completely wrapped around prenatally, postnatally, past one year, when we find that, for example, some of these children then are in trouble because they don't have access to dentists, we build dental care. When we find out that this young mom who has two children has just been inappropriately kicked out of where she lives, uh, we now have a partnership with Benish Friedlander that we have lawyers there at the Center for Women and Children to help fight sometimes these wildly inappropriate evictions. It has to be arms completely around the problem. Can't just be healthcare, it has to look at the social determinants. And I don't wanna to propose to you or say to you that we're, we reached the, you know, the promised land here, but I think it, it has to be thinking bigger than we ever thought before, and that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, and what you addressed is extremely, extremely important. This is, and so to say, um, this is one of the crucial issues for U.S. healthcare uh, and public health in general. Uh, what I'm referring to is the fact that the infant mortality in the United States is four to five times higher uh, than it is in very many Western European countries. Uh, that's national average. And for some of our neighborhoods, uh, they have five times higher infant mortality rates than the United States infant mortality rate. So now we're speaking about a really phenomenally complex problem. Uh, so that is obviously something that we're all passionate about, meaning we're passionate about uh, reducing it and giving our most vulnerable patients, most vulnerable members of the community a fair chance in life. How to address it, I'll just mention two or three things that we believe is really, really important. One of us is to eliminate the the biases and inequalities. Probably the first and the most important step is to create a workforce that looks more like the patients that they treat. The second is, uh, uh, once that is done, to enable that workforce to come closer to people in need, instead of expecting people in need to, to come closer to them. So to community health workers, people who look like people who need help, they need to focus on getting out into the community because a lot of times, the problem is not in the quality of the hospitals that are providing care, but very many problems related to infant mortality happen before the birth or after the birth. The yeah. way to recognize them and prevent them is pretty much based on these two big factors, and we have you know, double the size of our workforce community workforces, that we've changed the way that we're creating actually communities among pregnant women in our neighborhoods who are working together and sharing their experiences. And fortunately, we're now beginning to see a decline, as you well know, in infant mortality in our immediate neighborhoods. Now, that is very encouraging. It is not enough. Uh, but we are very optimistic about the future and uh, we will spell no resources to, uh, to address it.
Thank you. Um, hi, my name is Dr. Wendy Ellis Jones. I'm new to Cleveland. I just moved here four weeks ago. I've been here five times though, so I must <laughs> say I like this. However, one of the things that I'd love for w both of you to elaborate on it, I learned statistics, statistics in Cleveland that this city is the worst city for a black woman to live. That was extremely disturbing for, to me. However, I'm excited to be here. But let me say my question to you men who are not of color and a black woman, what is your commitment to helping change that landscape in general, if that's a philosophy, a commitment to try to recruit, help, or collaborate even possibly with the CEO of Metro, um, whatever fashion, but could you elaborate on that? So uh, maybe I can start with that, but uh, we do collaborate with our colleagues from Metro constantly. Uh, and uh, we have multiple forums where our health organizations come together. Everything that we mentioned in our prior conversation involved our colleagues from Metro. So this is just really, really important. So we have a unified front when it comes to all public public needs in the city of Cleveland. And that's, that's probably the biggest source of our, our shared pride when it comes to community outreach. I think to, to your question about uh, um, uh, whether people feel this is a good place to live, uh, regardless of their race, I think probably the most important uh, determinant of happiness, once again, is in employment. Uh, so many, and employment with a livable wage, and employment in an environment that is diverse, that recognizes and celebrates the diversity, and also an environment that promotes uh, people, regardless of their gender or sexual orientation, color, religion, any external attributes. I think that is what we, as largest employers, can do to address your specific question. I think it's incumbent upon us as leaders who combine have the largest workforce, uh, perhaps in the state, but certainly in this, in, in this region, um, to take advantage of, I think, what Tom alluded to, is the notion that one source of happiness is having a job with friends at your job. And uh, I, both of us work very, very hard to create an environment whereby people are able to be themselves, they can celebrate their diversity and their uniqueness, and at the same time uh, feel as though that they have an upward trajectory in the growth of their jobs, and, and those are, very, very vital things that we feel responsible and able to do. We also take care, UH takes care, last year 1.5 million individual patients in Northeast Ohio. We have a duty to them to provide them with uh, unbiased health care, uh, with uh, access uh, where it's appropriate, and more importantly, if they want, with physicians who look like them and come from where they come from. And as you heard, uh, that is one of the major parts of our recruitment efforts starting in the high school to college to medical school to residency and now we're able to deliver um, a very very uh, nice uptick if you will in the amount of diverse people that, that we're hiring at UH. I know the clinic's doing the same thing. And then finally to add uh, along you know we have regular uh, meetings with with Metro for a number of different things if most recently in December where we had um, the um, a press conference as it relates to our combined efforts on food insecurity. That was 
Metro UH and the Cleveland Clinic and many other times that's uh, the case. So I don't want to give the impression from just the two of us being here that um, we're not, I, read, I meet regularly with uh, Erica Steed every month uh, and we have many programs, both of us do, have combined programs uh, with, with Metro. So um, they're a very important part of the fabric. Okay. Our next question is a text question. It says, in the next 10 years, the 65 plus age group will increase by 18% in the U.S. How are you designing ER and critical care as well as innovations to address this rapidly aging U.S. demographic? You know, I'll start. Um, that's a national number that you're uh, actually, Cleveland's moving much faster than the national number. Uh, the aging population and the demographics of what is the growing part of our community, we've already reached those growing numbers. And so both of us, we, I could just speak for UH, have really retooled our shops to be ready uh, and more importantly be able to take safe care of our 65 plus uh, patients because that number has been growing faster here in Northeast Ohio than the rest of the country. So we had to get on that stick years ago. And that's why we have, if you will, the growth of our programs, the growth of the diversity of access sites in the programs. And more importantly, as some folks as they get older don't wanna travel, um, both of us have created mechanisms by which through our expanse of hospitals and medical office buildings, we're offering care closer to home replacing inpatient surgeries with ambulatory surgeries, for example, in orthopedics. Now, you don't have to stay overnight most of the time. You can have that at one of our community offerings, which is really what we hear from our uh, folks who are the 65 age plus. So I guess what I'm saying is that we, we are, we're ahead of the curve here in Northeast Ohio with, with the aging of our population. And so we've really built into at least our mechanisms of dealing with that uh, actually a couple of years ago. No, I, I agree. I mean, the. Uh, that is, that is a really important uh, part of our offerings, and it's really, really relevant. Uh, uh, I think we can both identify for it, because 10 years from now, we'll be exactly in that category, age category, so. Five uh, years from now. Yeah. You just turned 60. Uh, yeah, that is yeah. true, yeah. So five, five years That's from now. four years now, for me. Four, yeah. <laughs> four to five years from now, we'll be exactly in that category. Come on. <laughs> Come on. He's turned 60. That's five yeah. years. <laughs> he knows too much. Thanks to generous support from individuals like you. You can learn more about how to become a guardian of free speech at cityclub.org. Today's forum is also part of our health innovation series in partnership with Medical Mutual. Thank you so much for your support. Please join me in welcoming our students from MC Squared STEM High School, as well as guests at the tables hosted by Bostwick Design Partnership, Case Western Reserve University, Cleveland Clinic, Huntington, Medical Mutual, Turner Construction, and University Hospitals. Thank you all for being here with us today. This Friday, February 23rd, we will hear from top leadership here in Cleveland on what it will take to reforest the forest city and ensure our city meets its ambitious goal of 30% tree canopy coverage by 2040, another social determinant of health that we've been talking about today. Tickets are available for purchase online through noon tomorrow. If you haven't gotten yours yet, make sure you do that soon. 
Then next week on Wednesday, February 28th, we will get a sneak peek into what we can expect from the NCAA Women's Final Four Basketball Tournament. David Gilbert from the Greater Cleveland Sports Commission and reps from the NCAA and Women's Sports Network will be here with us. You can learn more about these forums and others at cityclub.org. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, members and friends of the City Club. I'm Cynthia Connolly, and our forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.